Welcome back to the Playful Podcast. Today's guest, Salin G. Varghese, is a longtime friend of mine and another one of several Obama administration alumni that has appeared on the Playful Podcast. Salin and I met when he was working in the administration and uh, have stayed good friends since. And so you'll get to hear him talk about that work, his work at his own consulting practice, and broadly what's been true from the beginning before and after his time working in the White House and ever since he sort of entered the stage of impact work is he's a great connector and facilitator. He sees opportunities for people to work together that they might not even see and knows how to build bridges to collective action. You're going to love the conversation. We have fun eating ice cream as always. And we also talk about great comedians who have a lot to teach change makers. Have fun. You're listening to The Playful Podcast with Christine Mitchie. Let's jump right in. Welcome everyone back to the Playful Podcast. I am, I think I'm as enthusiastic each time because I look in the screen or I'm looking across the room at my uh, guest and I get so excited because I'm so grateful. And, and today is another example of that. Salen Giovarjais is a longtime friend of mine. I've had the pleasure in these first two seasons to reconnect with some folks I've known for over a dozen years and Salen's one of those people. So I am so glad that he's here. I'm going to have him introduce himself. He wears many hats and I'm excited to hear which hat he's going to lead with when he uh, tells you, tells us about who he is and what he does. Christine, it's great to be with you. Salen Giverghese, President and CEO of SGG Insight and also a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of Social Policy. And we will see how many different hats you you uh, evoke for me today. I think that'll be part of the playfulness of today because I've had the blessing and privilege of wearing bunches of different hats and it's part of the journey. Yes, I think you keep quite a hat rack uh, in your office. I do, I do. I'm, I'm trying to hold on to my hair, right? And so maybe as I hold on to my hair, I'll figure out what the hat rack actually looks like over time. All right, so if you would just give us your, your headline on SGG Insights which is what you led with yeah. in this introduction. Yes. And uh, so SGG Insights is my consultancy that I actually started um, in late 2019 is when it was incorporated. The inspiration of it is a longer story, tidbits of which I would say are after my father passed, had begun to ask myself what was limiting me, what was constraining me, why was I waiting for someone else to give me an opportunity to lead? Don't I have a voice and a platform in and of myself? But I don't come from any history of starting entrepreneurial endeavors or businesses or those kinds of things. And so started the consultancy and it really gives me an opportunity to lean in on equity, inclusion, opportunity and justice issues from a wide frame, uh, not feeling limited, like I can't do that because that's not what the chosen mission of an organization is. So it's been great to be able to do it. I've learned a lot and still learning a lot. I love it. Now I'm going to um, both proclaim this problem and indulge it, which is, I think the fact that you worked for President Obama is probably, you know, the thing people remember or start with or want to know about, and I'm guilty too. So I would love you to tell us a little bit about your time working in the White House and how that was the result of things you've done before and then has that experience has then informed what you're doing since. It's a great, it's a great story and you're absolutely right. And the truth is, I probably will never grow tired of talking about it. Part of it is, Christine, is you can imagine. So I am Asian Indian American. 
and first generation American. My father came in the late 50s. I don't think he or my mother would have ever had the notion that their son would represent the United States and would work for the president of the United States. I don't think I ever went back in journals mm. and wrote that down and proclaimed right. it into the universe. Yeah. And so some of the reason why I don't tire of talking about it is that I feel so incredibly humbled that I was chosen in that way. And it is right, you mentioned it, that at the time when the call comes for me to serve, it's a much funnier story that I can indulge in later with you playful. and I think I, I think it is played it is actually played it's, it's quite funny uh at one level it's funny now in retrospect it wasn't funny in the moment but that said um I was actually a, a senior program executive at the Annie Casey Foundation and the portfolio that I had was thinking about larger issues of regional equity and economic development and infrastructure issues and kind of next generation of community and place-based work that the foundation was thinking about. And as President Obama gets elected and in the transition, there are these signals that get sent that we're going to think about some of the same stuff that I had been working on. And so come mid-2009, a call comes into the Casey Foundation saying, you know, would you be willing to come and serve? And... I didn't say yes automatically. I went home, talked to the wife and family and said, if you can imagine it, this has come in. And they didn't really have to think very long to say, oh, what are you talking about? Of course, go in. And it was an incredible experience. We have had a friend, a mutual friend of ours has been on the podcast. Cecilia Munoz was on yes. at the end of uh, season one. And her story about she was in a minivan, uh, Rahm Emanuel was on the speaker phone, she was driving carpool. And then after Rahm made the introduction, next thing, uh, here came the president-elect on uh, the speaker in the minivan, um, asking Cecilia uh, similarly if she would be willing to serve. She also didn't say yes right away, and um, but... But as she described it, you'll eventually he will eventually get the yeses he needs because that is oh the absolutely power of persuasion. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. I love it. Yeah. Okay, so let me thank you for the introduction. Thank you for filling yeah. in that fun. Um, you know, well, it's way more than a tidbit, but thank you for filling that in for us. I want to ask you what I start often with, which is to have you tell us who's the most playful person you know. You know the most playful person I know right now is probably my son, um, who he, as our only son and child, is in a house full of uh, grandparents and parents. And we encouraged the play in him and he kept, keeps us and kept us uh, playful. I think in just, uh, he, interestingly enough, when you have that many adults in his life, I think people would probably say he's pretty serious, but it doesn't take like music or sports or or other ways in which children will remind you of your playful nature. And so I probably would go there. There are other like jokesters and other folks that I have really kind of watched and enjoyed over time, but something we'll probably get into I expect, Christine, is that um, a lot of the people I have worked with 
and who've been in my life um, probably would really benefit from a podcast like this mm. because they reconcile the notion of serious, petty, heavy things we do yeah. that almost feels counter mm -hmm. to being playful. Yeah. And how do you actually restore? And that's part of what this whole enterprise is about. Yep. I, I know one of the, uh, the questions that I think I shared with you in advance, which is, do you think play gets a bad rap, especially in, you know, we could talk about in corporate America broadly, but even kind of more relevant to us and more relevant to the podcast and maybe even more significant, does it get a bad rap in the change sector where there's, you could see the perspective, well, there's really nothing to laugh about right? This, mm -hmm. this, you know, kind of issue after issue is kind of wrapped around problem after problem. We're all working on the solutions, but I wonder what you think about, about how you've seen people bring play, how you've brought play in, even if there's some resistance, because, you know, is there a sense of like, we can't be too light about these heavy things. How do we balance that? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's why I'm grateful, Christine, both for who you are, and this contribution that you're making to the field and even the pause that this podcast invited me to do, mm -hmm. because I would tell you that I expect if I were to actually hit the rewind button about my own life, that the playfulness of my early life as a child and a young person, that as you mature, in some ways, we get raised to say maturity, headiness, seriousness requires a kind of a 24 7 mm. way of approaching. Um, and so I had to actually, for myself, find ways to keep things lighter. Uh, and some of that showed up in uh, humor. Some that was self-effacing, some that was uh, moments to kind of comment on things. Or uh, I took lots of inspiration from the things that comedians themselves notice and observe and realized, right? That the part of my own critical eye that would pick up on expressions yeah. on people's faces and what they would do in an audience that I would literally play to for a moment, they would almost get a serious topic or an audience to just breathe a little bit. Can you was, give an example? Yeah, I think almost always, like when I'm facilitating a meeting or leading a conversation, even on Zoom, I admit freely and have confessed that I, I read expressions on people's faces, always have, uh -huh. take what people give me as energy as an indication of where they are, right? And so whether it's a frown or a smile of some sort, I will almost always, as soon as someone appears on Zoom or they appear in a room to me, I will walk over to them. I will say something must have been magical in your life because the, you know, the smile you're wearing yeah. suggests that you're bringing joy and that your other colleagues over here need a little bit of what you're actually bringing. And again, people start laughing. People start like exhaling a little bit just to breathe. And, uh, and yet, you know, there's the pivots that you have to make to get people to feel like what you're going to talk about requires seriousness. But I, I think 
for me, it almost always became humor became the way for people to, you know, lower their shoulders a little bit, feel like I was going to be friendly, right? That I was very willing to not take myself so seriously, even though everything I was going to talk about was probably serious. And um, it was probably the beginning. It probably is the beginning of lots of relationships. And the truth is, Christine, probably when you and I first met, yeah, the probably the observation I gave you was, oh, the smile on your face suggests something about what is in you. Tell me more about that. Yeah. yeah. So I love it. Definitely the there is a spirit to the longevity of our relationship, even with some pretty big gaps of, you know, I don't even know mm-hmm. different chunks of time passed, but I think you're right. We kind of touched back into, um, I see it in your smile. I see it in your eyes and there's, and there's that, that there's playfulness in there. So I just had a thought that like, what can change makers learn from stand up comics? Yeah. <laughs> I think there might be a theme there and maybe we figure yeah. out uh, how to, how to make something more of that. Do you have a favorite comic? Um, you know what? I like a lot of them. You know, it's been interesting. I probably grew up with, um, you know, early stages of all of the folks who were on SNL. Right. right. And the various abilities, but I've always said it to myself, you know, it's, it's Murphy, it's everybody who was on there. But I think for me, it was, it was also seeing a comedian like Robin Williams who came out and was always a comic, but then there were so many other dimensions of personality, right? So I remember a Tom Hanks on Bosom Buddies and would say like, that's who I remember. Uh, And yet there are all of these other dimensions of serious roles that he has actually played. So I've always marveled at at what the genius of comedians mm. actually enabled them to explore and do in other areas. I love it. I'm thinking, Sal, and if you and I end up in a meeting room together or even a big like conference setting, um, that I might now think how I feel when I go into like a stand-up comedian situation where you think they might call on me and bring me up to stage. Like, you know, magicians and comics do that. Yes. Like, they look like for the yes. volunteers in the audience. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. No, no, no. I think I think there have been moments, not because I have any talent at being a comedian, where people as the walk to them happens, they're like, Oh my gosh, what is this guy gonna actually invite me to do? So no, what it's I it's, love about it's it, well, I love a lot of things about one thing that comes to mind at the fore is that um it's just a reminder of the humanity that is present when any group of people have gathered, yeah. right? There's, there's yes. the issue we've come to talk about. There's the meeting, which is some time that's been set aside. There's a, a room with a table or a stage or a, a Zoom. Um, but it, each person is a full self, right, coming in there. And this sounds like from watching body language and energy, you're able to tap into who really is here in the room and what can we help them uncover about themselves in this moment that they could bring to the effort. I'll say I'll say one other thing that just struck me, which was, um, you know, my father was a a, was a wonderful man, a a tough person, as fathers can be. uh, And he was serious and I was playful. So that always meant 
that I was messing with him a lot <laughs> and um, pushing boundaries with him, like messing up his hair, even though he, you know, <laughs> had made sure, you know, whatever it was, right? Irritating him in a certain way. He always knew it to the point that he would routinely call me silly solemn, right? And so some of the earliest memories of me uh, and of our interactions were silliness. That was one set of things. And then I think I shared with you, we're in this multi-generational household and we got lots of, with the grandparents at home, my mother included, we've got all of these health things that are happening, devastating health consequences Mm -hmm. that have happened and are happening. And you know, the thing that will light the entire house is in spite of everything my mom in particular is going through, when she laughs, it is so explosive for the house, right? That everyone starts laughing. Yes. And even as because of her condition, it's tougher for her to speak now. It's her laugh that actually is staying. And I've told her, I said, I think that's, I think that's going to be your gift that you keep giving is that when Mm. you laugh, right? Everybody laughs and it's incredibly contagious. There was in the seventies, a toy. And sometimes I bring Mm. things up. Any of us brings things up and we find out the few years difference in people's ages can show up between like what was happening when and what was popular when, but there was this, and I don't know if you'll, be in the same age yes. I remember this there was like this laugh box thing it came in a little yes stack, right and yes you know, and, it, and, it, and I think the whole point yes. was to bring laughter into a space yes which is turns out to be in, in fact contagious yes yes no I, I do remember it and <laughs> think uh I, again I never these are things you think about like when you get moments like you're going to be on a podcast with Christine and you're thinking through like, what's the source of that? But, but I have, particularly in this circumstance with my mom, I have actually told her, I said, man, I think this really is your gift. Other things may be more challenging for you now, but the gift that you're, that's going to keep giving for you is laughing. Yeah. And you've shared with me, I think I'm remembering correctly, that she spent her career as a teacher. She did. Absolutely. Yeah. So Absolutely. that ability to, yeah. and, you know, teaching is teaching, teaching is also ultimately connecting. And so yes. with, her, with her laughter, that, that happening. Um, we'll probably talk about um, her a bit more when we eat the ice cream, which folks, you know, will be coming up here in a, in a few minutes. Um, Salen, did you... So the play personalities, which is part of the work of Dr. Stuart Brown, who's been on the podcast, there's these eight types. And, and folks, you can go to NIF Play, National Institute yeah. for Play, NIFPLAY.org to look them up. Did you have a chance to look, or can I remind you of any of them? And did one of them strike you as leading for you more often than not than the others? Yeah, I uh, I did look at them and I appreciate you actually, again, this whole enterprise of thinking much more intentionally about this than I probably ever ha- had before. I I think there are two that probably struck me with one that's probably more dominant and it's the director uh, mm. one. So part of that I think is because I spent so much time both personally and professionally curating and leading and facilitating and connecting 
that there is joy that has always come to me and seeing th- things come together mm. in a certain way. And um, it has invited me to kind of think through the moments when I'm not in that role mm. and how I experience other play personalities, um, which I think are, you know, probably the moments where I can relax the most. But I think the director, the second one I'll tell you was the storyteller one. Mm-hmm. I think as you're witnessing now, yes. it's hard to shut me up when I, once no. I'm started. <laughs> the, the stories, I think I naturally speak in, mm-hmm. in narrative. Yeah. And that's probably just a part of the, the, the personality as well. The things that you'll notice and observe and, and repeat. Love it. Um, well, in fact, if you've been invited onto a podcast, I think the more talking, the better. So it's a perfect place mm. to be loquacious. <laughs> <laughs> so indeed, when we think about your work at SGG Insights, um, at CSSP, and then with when you were in the White House and all these yeah. things before and after, what what when we think about you and we think about you working playfully, but working on yeah, or some issues, what? What's hot for you right now? Where do you think you could have the most influence and impact? And you'd like people to know that you're working on that. That will give them some relief. Their shoulders will drop. Say, oh, Salon's working on that. What, what yeah, it's categories. It's great. It, it, it's a great question. And uh, it, it actually is the other part of the story of, of SGG Insights and why do it. And I suspect for lots of entrepreneurs, what they understand about themselves what they feel like they can contribute into the world. So among the origin stories of that was that I had I had started in the, the MX space 38 plus years ago in in kind of education reform mm-hmm. issues. My my parents were teachers. I saw the power of education as a equalizer, as a mobilizer, mm-hmm. as a as a pathway for people to actually get ahead. And like what happens for a lot of people, you start in one space. You probably experience the limits within systems and silos of that space, which I did in short order. And, and most often when I started experiencing the limits is when I would start asking questions that were on the edges hmm. of things. Like back then it was, if we know that there are other drivers of student achievement beyond what happens in the classroom. How do we think about leveraging those mm-hmm. drivers for the sake of achievement? And when I would experience the edges and the walls is when people would say, well, that's not my job. Mm-hmm. I'm a school person. I'm an educator. Mm-hmm. What I have sphere of influence and power and authority over are in these walls and in these buildings. And I just always felt like that was insufficient. So that started in education reform, went to workforce development, went to community development and housing. And I've been on this pathway of, if you center vulnerable kids and families, marginalized communities and often communities of color, lots of things have to be working together for people to actually succeed and prosper. And I've had the privilege, largely because of these kinds of moments, of having spent time in all of those. So for me, I'm a connector. I see connections, right? In the sixth sense 
kind of movie, if you remember it, is he saw dead people. I see connections. I often, as he did in the movie, I see connections earlier than some people in the room Mm. see them. And so that's part of my challenge is like, how do actually have things evolve and move so that things can start to come together? Because for the ultimate objective of closing wealth gaps, of dealing on racial equity and justice and inclusion in this society, you know, we, we have to get beyond the silos. Yeah. We have to think about how the sectors can relate. And if my testimony and work and story uh, can be leveraged for that work and those kinds of results in the future, that, that's what I would do. So SGG Insight became as much of a platform to say, um, I'm back. I can actually talk about things that if you only knew me 30 years ago, this happened to me, Christine, where someone actually said to me, Salin, I knew you 30 years ago and you were concerned about schools. When I looked you up recently, I see you're doing all of this work in housing and community development. And here's the language. I assume you don't care about schools anymore. And I know they were being provocative. (laughs) But I said, of course, I care about schools. I care about how all of these things need to work together to help families succeed. You know, when we met, um, I was working for a family foundation doing some neighborhood revitalization work in a community Mm. in Southeast San Diego. And one of the things I would often, you know, hear people describe and felt myself as this, I think the phrasing was, you know, when you pull a string, right, you realize everything is connected. It, It will either ravel or unravel. I guess, is ravel a verb? A verb? <laughs> the opposite of unraveling? It so, is now. <laughs> so, and I think often that was said in a, in a kind of a sense of frustration. Ugh, I'm working on housing, but then I realize if there's no good houses, there's no good schools, you know, and if there's, That's no, right. there's not health. And, but I guess I'm just now with you talking, I'm thinking the, the connectedness is actually also the power, right? Mm-hmm. If you know, we're thinking about, oh, I can't believe all these, there's so many problems all connected. Well, yes which means that if I'm working in any one of them, I can affect the other. So it kind yes. of it goes in that direction too. Yes, absolutely. And I think going to the administration, the invitation that came to me was in thinking through that what the vision was, was to have a notion of how we build places that are equitable mm. and prosperous yeah. and inclusive and, and sustainable that by virtue of the principles and the naming of the aspiration that we actually had, it meant that multiple agencies had to kind of come together to make that work come together. And because that was part of my work was, you know, now connectedness is a value proposition, Mm -hmm. right? People who can navigate those, you know, those pathways to find, as I would increasingly say that, the success often as a leader in the administration was having people who had spent life in a silo, mm. seeing themselves in each other's work. Like, yeah. oh, I can now see how if you succeed, I can succeed. And how do we actually make that come together? I love it. Okay, let's, um, let's have ice cream. Ah! Yes! I can yeah. go get it? Yeah, Salon's going to go get his ice cream. I'm going to start doing our little preamble on this week's ice cream sponsor and fund. So often, most often, only a few times not, my guests and I are eating the same ice cream. 
this week, because of some geographic matters, Sal and I are having different ice cream. And so he's going to go get his. I'm going to tell you briefly about mine, which will be familiar to folks who have been listening to the podcast for a while. Um, cool House, which is a um, founded, it was founded by two uh, Latina LGBTQ women in Los Angeles, has since been bought by a bigger company, but still has mission and ice cream at its core, um, was an early sponsor of the podcast and provided ice cream to some of the earliest episodes. I went back to the market and got a carton of that, which I must admit, I told my husband last night he could start it. So I don't have a full carton, which is good because I really don't want to eat a whole pint at this time. So I have some Cool House. Um, we had this on before the street cart, street cart churro dough ice cream. Now, Salen, this story is so exciting. This is a new partner for the Playful Podcast to Harka Brothers Ice Cream based in um, Salen's in um, Maryland and their Baltimore-based social enterprise started by a philanthropist who was engaging in the community and lots of different activities, one of which then became an ice cream shop. And they, we met them just recently. Another folk, another person that we know in the change sector, let me know about them. Um, he's with 2164, which is a consulting practice for family philanthropists. And he said, do you know about Taharka Brothers? You got to get them on the podcast. So it didn't take more than that for me to get on the phone, get rolling. And as of this morning, one of the uh, principals from the um, from the company stopped by, did personal delivery to Salen of a carton of Taharka Brothers um, ice cream. And I think Salen is working on his tech, coming back on. We're good? Thumbs up. I can okay. hear you. Thumbs up, spoons up. Spoons up. Okay. Are we, uh, now, are we showing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we're showing. There we go. And, you know, some of my guests come on with like, they've served themselves a nice little portion, but I like how you're like me. I go all in. I am. I am a glutton. I love it. So tell us what you've got there in your hands. I've got Taharka made in Baltimore. This is cookies and coffee. Oh, yeah. Which is, as I told and confessed (laughs) earlier, I sampled. (laughs) And I may not have much more to say. (laughs) <laughs> After it just starts going in my mouth. Well, I have found that because um, what we talk about now is what's the scoop on how you came to care and some of your impact mm. origin story. Um, so let's have a bite and then we'll get because once we start, yes. it's hard to it's hard to eat. Yes. And talk as a, OK, here we go. OK, here we go. Mm. Mm, 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 mm. Mm. And so I don't know if you heard mm. as you stepped away. Cool house. Which is, mm. it's cool because we're both having a, a brand based in where we're from. So this is from California, Southern California, mm-hmm. LA based. And um, they were a sponsor of season one and provided oh, wow. ice cream to um, our first three episodes. And um, and now you're having Baltimore represent mm. their um, mm-hmm. brothers. And it was a hand delivery today from one of the executives of the company. It was unreal. It was like, and she gave me a time by, you know, a minute by minute arrival time. Which meant both for my excitement for the ice cream to arrive that I actually, with smile on my face, <laughs> greeted her in my driveway. Okay. And folks, I have to tell you that um, Sal and I, in, in, separate from the podcast, just from our, our relationship, about, I don't know, two months ago or so, mm. um, he shared with me some of what was going on in his household as he mm. shared with us about 
you know, the, the beauty and the challenges of being in a multi-generation home where there's health issues being navigated and, and a young man preparing to go off to college. Mm-hmm. And so I just said, I got to send you some ice cream. And um, folks, ice, ice cream is a perishable product. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not just like sending somebody a pair of socks, right? Or a book, right? <laughs> it takes a fair amount of coordination. Mm. And the first batch that came was from Ice Cream Jubilee, which is also another ice cream company based in uh, the D.C. area, sent five pints in a massive box. And oh, my God, Salen has shared with us about his mom's laughter. Oh, and, my gosh. And this this perked up. This was a multi-generational gift that arrived on. Uh, so but let's talk about the Harker Brothers. What did you hear about them? The guy you excited that we were going to be enjoying. You'd be enjoying their ice cream today. You know, so with credit. Uh, Christine, to you, because of what, um, you know, Google revealed when I clicked on the link and heard more of the story, both the story of the the founder and or CPA who yeah. got compelled and called to kind of work in Baltimore for all of us who work in in cities and in places where there are levels of desperation and you want to be about, you know, how do I offer a pathway? I think the thing that struck me is how quickly in the narrative of Taharka, it called him to be in relationship with these young people, these African-American young men and women in Baltimore, one. Number two, that ownership Mm. actually was the pathway and there's a part of the video that has them signing their ownership agreement yes right and what it would mean yes what it would mean for people for our work christine where we talk about economic mobility and wealth gap and ownership that's what i started thinking through because you know in my own pathway there are times where the measures and the data you feel like you're closing a gap, but in particular, when you start thinking about wealth building, you have to start thinking about what are people's pathway toward owning and having. And so that part of the story, I don't know, I never anticipated, I should have expected that you would land, Christine, on something that appealed to my mind and heart. And it did, it did. So I gave the person who delivered Lindsay a card. I said, I'm going to be in touch. I know Christine's going to be in touch. They're not going to, they're not going to know what hit them. I think uh, now. It's so exciting. And I got to tell you, I mean, I don't remember the moment when I decided, you know, that we would eat ice cream on the podcast. And I love that moment. And I, mm. I also kind of love that. I don't remember because I just think it might've mm. been just pure inspiration that I can't, that I'm not even meant to recall, but mm. man, the number of ice cream entrepreneurs out there who mm. are, people of color who are immigrants mm. who are doing doing this work that their, their chosen profession is to bring this kind of delight into the world and have yeah. themselves an impact story is is kind of uncanny and i mm-hmm. you, know, you know i'm looking for it but i am finding mm-hmm. it almost everywhere mm. that i've looked okay so now i don't want to skip you what's the scoop on how you came to care when i think when you think about you share with us some image some memories of early playfulness Mm. Mm -hmm. what members do you have of early impact of feeling like you had a role to play in helping others sort of most broadly yeah so some of this 
when the when the googling starts happening on who's this guy Salman Gibrig is this talking to the wonderful Christine Michi um I've I've had a chance particularly when my father passed to deconstruct right um when key members of your own story you know leave you and you've talked about your grandmother you've yeah. talked about these stories before about influences so I often go back and I've actually written about this publicly around um, one of the earliest experiences in elementary school when I was in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And if you heard my dad, my dad would say that we were the first Asian Indian family in Chattanooga. And if you've never been before, you might actually joke to say, like, uh, how many other people are there? There are like hundreds of thousands of Indians there, right? And whether we were the first or not, we were among the earliest mm -hmm. people there, which meant like most of my life, I'm navigating a circumstance where no one looks like me. Mm -hmm. And that earliest recollection of... Uh, in kindergarten was being on the playground and a white boy and a black girl look at me and say, are you black or white solid? Oh, wow. And I was five and I didn't know how to answer the question. And I think in those early years was trying to kind of navigate, like, what does it mean? And the reason why it's the earliest recollection on the pathway to care is that what it did invite me into pretty early on is into these worlds that people operate that are separate and isolated and often segregated. And I ended up navigating them like constantly early in life. And once you start navigating them, you actually also start seeing where things break down in our society, mm -hmm. like who has what, what's in whose neighborhood, what's mm -hmm. not in other mm -hmm. folks' neighborhoods, what do people have access to? So my racial equity journey that is as much part of my care journey, you know, starts fundamentally with, a, with an identity question of like, where do I fit? Mm -hmm. Where do I belong? And I came to understand much more of my sense of cultural and identity and language and all of those types of things. But the biggest entry point was this notion of navigating as an other mm -hmm. how to turn that from something that could be isolating and feeling alone mm -hmm. to actually that question when you're five years old it really didn't matter what the answer was mm -hmm. and i found myself in multiple communities in multiple times. And when I probably was at my happiest is when they were integrated communities, where I didn't mm -hmm. feel like I could drop in one and there was no representation of the other. So care for me started with that kind of, that kind of story. And then, you know, in particular, as I mentioned before, when you start seeing disparities yeah. play out, that's when the questions start. It's like, wait a minute, this is not fair. Right. Right? Right. And this is not just. And why is it this way? And 
Um, the only other part of the story was I was a big fan of biographies uh, mm. as a child and found myself naturally gravitating as a child to the biographies of our like major human rights and civil rights mm. leaders, right? And growing up in the South in particular and realizing that I was on the terrain where so much sacrifice and blood was spilled, I think I I just like imbibed all, all of that. But its roots are in that story around equity, that story about disparity and what are we gonna do about it? Yeah, I love it. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing that that story of five-year-old silly Sal, um, mm. <laughs> um, you know, being a white woman and growing up in the dominant yeah. culture, right. Um, as a part of the dominant culture, you know, of course that around what I look like never happened. Of course, each of us has our own differences and distinctions, mm -hmm. and things, some known to others and some, you know, more private, but I can only ap appreciate, um, but not really understand that because I haven't mm. experienced. I appreciate that. And, you know, so many of the folks on the podcast, I, I would probably dare to say all of them, you know, when they either personally confronted or witnessed an injustice, their reaction was, you know, was probably first, that's not fair. But then right after that is like, what can I do? How can I help? Yeah. And, that's the nature of the work we both get to do, the people yeah. we get to work with. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, that's, you mentioned my grandmother, her thing about, you know, better to light a candle than curse the Absolutely. darkness. That's what the mantra I was raised with. Um, I'm wondering about your own, in this, in this part of your professional, you know, avocational and vocational life, um, how you're currently bringing play into your days. Are you doing anything as Brene Brown says, for no reason, just because, mm. and, or are you looking for something like that to add? Yeah, it's a great question. And I knew that you would ask it, which invited me to rigorously look at myself. I'm, I am, as so many of us are, and blessed to have, I have the love of my life in my wife, who is my constant reminder to uh, take a moment and breathe and kind of relax. And can you just sit? I think there was, in the silliness, there was probably always restlessness. I was always moving at some level, right? And I find myself always like on my feet and moving around and uh, wanting to fix something. I think fixing things yeah. Yeah. probably always was part of, and it's interesting, you wouldn't necessarily think of it in play, but that part of being a director that is mm -hmm. like the joy that comes from something happening, yeah. right? <laughs> Work that you put in, yep. seeing a result, claiming that kind of result. So I would say, I need more help to do that. I do find moments for rest, moments for exercise. We've talked about exercise ourselves in our life. I do find moments for enjoying music. I think with my mom in particular, the silliness does come out. A song will come out. And, you know, she has difficulty with her arms and legs now. 
And if I'm picking her up, I will routinely, and there are videos to, to document this, like get her dancing on feet and getting her just moving in a certain kind of way. And so the silliness comes out still. And, but I will probably always need my wife to remind me to just sit, take a moment, take it all in. Uh, don't go so fast. Don't have, as, as I know I do, have so much urgency. Mm. Um, uh, I feel like the work involved, you know, requires a level of urgency, yeah. but I do. I need to take a moment here and there. So I'll be working on it. This ice cream is helping, by the way. Right. I say absolutely. I think it, more ice cream never hurts. You'd mentioned those uh, mm. comics from the 70s and SNL. Um, I, there's a Steve Martin Oh yeah, bit that I remember that I've thought about off, off, often using ice cream as a, for the same purpose. He used to say that because you know, he plays the banjo, and um, he'd say you can't be in a bad mood when there's a banjo around. And I think the same thing is said with ice cream. You really can't be in a bad mood when ice cream. Oh is yeah. So oh I'm absolutely glad to bring that. So I want to um, I want to wrap up by asking you to any call to action any. Um, way that we can support you or support things you care about. Love to hear. And we'll put on the show notes, you know, websites to things that matter to you, um, et cetera. But anything you want to call out before we wrap up? Yeah, I, I think, um, I think the thing that comes to my mind are maybe two or three things. One is that I feel like uh, humility and curiosity continue to be so important right there's so much we don't understand even if we think we understand it there's so many places and people in our life that a little more curiosity mm. would probably serve us all well when we're trying to always figure out or feel like we figured out the type of a person that we're dealing with or others so the questions that enable you to to excavate a little bit more to give you more insight. And we've talked about yes. that, Christine, yeah. like what you what you see and what you don't see, right? Yeah. When you meet someone. And so my encouragement as a call to action is give people a shot to share their story with you, to reveal more of themselves, to see where as the connector that I tried to be, where the connections will emerge. And then in the in my professional side, although that's related to the professional work, uh, on my professional side is uh, let's keep trying to find a way to see ourselves in each other's work. Yeah, yeah. Right? So that we can cross those edges and those boundaries and those walls that we erect so yes. often yes. in a much better way. Because I think given the gravity of the challenges that we face, I think that's an imperative. We have to be able to do that. It can no longer be the excuse that that's not my job when we actually face so many challenges where it's everyone's job. Yeah, love it. Fantastic. I agree. I am excited to know the multidimensional, multi-issue, multi-sector person that you are. And thank you for sharing this time and the ice cream with me and with all the guests and all those listening. Have a great one. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. 
Stay tuned for Double Scoop, two delicious insights from today's episode. Hey, everybody. Today's Double Scoop from the conversation with Salon G. Vargis is super tasty. I think that what stuck with me most was, first of all, his observation that changemakers can learn a lot from comedians. They've got this ability, this, in fact, this need to read the room when they walk onto stage and identify kind of where the where the weak spots are in the audience and where the strength and energy is coming from. And in so doing, kind of create this symphony of energy to make something happen. In that case, make people laugh. But we know with Changemakers to make the group, um, to make the context and the atmosphere and the environment for the group conducive to doing big work together. So I love that, thinking about what comedians can teach Changemakers. And secondly, Salen talked about working on the edges, and I love that. I think we hear a lot about people working in silos. Another way of thinking about that is people are in sort of boxes, and you get to the edges of those boxes, and that's where the really juicy stuff happens. Maybe it's a little uncomfortable at first, but then you know those edges later become the middle and the norm, and so push through those and do that work at the connection points between what's comfortable and familiar and what's new, exciting, and potentially groundbreaking. So love the call with Sal and the time together and uh, hope you all enjoyed and keep up the good work. Thank you for listening to the Playful Podcast with Christine Mitchie. If you want to stay playful as you tackle the world's problems and get all the scoop on today's tastiest ice cream, click to follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can learn more about Christine on LinkedIn and her work with Changemakers Worldwide at ImpactfulInc.com. That's Impactful with two L's, I-N-C.com.